Welcome to episode five of the Paydia Education Podcast. I'm Dr. Bernie. And I'm Dr. Richard. And Richard, the title of today's podcast is Sound Aspirations, Impossible Implementation. It takes Im- Impossible? Impossible. Impossible. Impossible okay. Implementation. Right. took us a little bit of time to come up with that title, though. Well, I like the title, so <laughs> good. Well, we had... In our previous podcast, we talked about the idea of doing a good sound history of Common Core, uh, but we're still kind of we're still collecting information about that. Mm-hmm. So we weren't able to put everything together for that podcast today. Uh, but what we decided to do instead is uh, finish up a little bit of research and looking into why some of these issues have been a problem. Is that fair to say? Right. Right. So we're gonna start off today talking, taking what we've talked about already with, uh, with our school reform uh, process, what's been going on with school reform, and talk about, I- instead of just talking about why it's so frustrating, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about maybe why we should be frustrated with it, or maybe why the most appropriate reason right. for us to be a- frustrated with it. Right. Yeah. I'm... I'm I'm always interested in how we got to where we are, you know, kind of this, uh, how, how do we get, you know, we have many problems in education today. We hear about uh, the opt-out movement, standardized testing, common core, and there's always a fewer, you know, surrounding these things. But but I always like to f- try to figure out how, how did we get here? Right. You know, what, what got us to where we are today? Where did common core come from? Why do we why do we have this um, obsession with testing children, and why do we want to hold them back, and why do we want to test teachers? Where did all this stuff come from? And I thought before we get into Common Core, and 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 uh, discuss that, I thought how how did Common Core develop? Where did it come from? How did we how did we reach a point where we needed a Common Core? Right. And as I went back and looked at this information, I thought, well, let's let's give our listeners um, some idea of uh, how we got to Common Core and standardized testing and some of the problems we're dealing with in educational reform. Right. And, and hopefully what, what you will take home with this today is not just the, the frustration that we already feel, but maybe a better appreciation of why we should be frustrated. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If we're going to be opposed to something, let's be opposed for the right reason. Right. Right. So quick recap. We have already gone through and, and talked about issues and the history of school reform. Uh, that was over the last couple of podcasts. We, we've kind of gone through that in, in a little bit of detail and sometimes a lot of detail. And so just as the quick recap, our, our current reform more or less began in the 1980s uh, right. with, with the uh, paper that was written, at no, The Nation at Risk. Uh, it evolved over time, turned into No Child Left Behind, under the um, second Bush administration, and, and then it c- continued to evolve into what we have today or what's being um, approved today, which is college or career ready, uh, the idea that all students will be either prepared for college or career by the time they graduate high school. Um, and so with that history, where we want to start today is with the idea that the the goals of those movements mm-hmm. really aren't all, all, all that bad. It's right. really not a bad idea. Right. Yeah. I think, I think people are motivated. I think their, mo- their motives are okay. In, in most cases, the people who have been trying to reform education are, are doing it for the right reasons. Right. 
Right. So, you know, the idea that um, students will meet a certain level of standard by the time they graduate high school, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that idea. That's right. We want all students to be literate by the time they finish a 12th grade education. Right. That's not an unreasonable standard to pursue. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not unreasonable to, to expect uh, teachers to provide a certain level of education to our students. Right, right. Um, and so we're going to go through the three, really the three main things that came out of our current school reform uh, system. And again, the the goals really aren't that bad. So out of this newest round of school reform, we got three things. The idea of accountability. Right. The idea of school choice. Right. And the idea of standards-based curriculum. Right. Okay, those were the three things that came out of our current round of school reform. Again, not that bad of ideas. You know, accountability, once again, it's, it's not, there's nothing wrong with saying uh, that schools and teachers and administrators should provide a particular level of education to our kids. Right. You know, and, and this came out of, you know, sound evidence that some schools weren't quite cutting it mm-hmm. while other schools were doing a really good job. There, there's no, you know, there shouldn't be a mystery that those students who go to the school, schools that are meeting certain expectations, those students tend to do better. Right. And, and I think, again, if we put it in some historical context, in the middle 1980s, when um, A Nation at Risk was, um, was written, um, there was concern. I, I think many people in the country, including most educators, were probably concerned about the quality of education, especially the quality of education for minority students. Because, right. in fact, there were many students who were still graduating from high school who were unable to read or they were reading at an elementary school level. And if you say you're a high school graduate, that should carry some meaning. And in the 1980s, right. remember the 80s, this whole thing started in the 60s. Um, you know, with the, the, the upheaval that we experienced right. in the 60s and 70s. And so by the 1980s, um, um, there, there were, there were um, uh, weak spots in our educational system, the main one being that um, there, was a, there was a lowering of expectation. I think the education that most of, most of our parents got in the 1940s or 50s was probably of a different quality than the one we were presenting in the 1980s. I mean, that was the concern, is that we were lowering our standards. So the idea with accountability or standards or uh, these reforms were, let's expect more from everybody. Let's expect more from our students. Let's expect more from our teachers. And let's, let's build a stronger educational system. So I think it had come apart in the 60s and 70s. And in the 1980s, we were trying to rebuild it, reinvigorate it, rejuvenate it. And make a stronger educational system so that we could compete at a at an international level. Remember, this was also the time of globalization, the beginnings of, of globalization, and we wanted to be um, we wanted our students to be um, comparable to students from other countries. So yes, you're right. The aspiration was driven by all the right motives. Let's make the system better. Let's be able to compete internationally. Right. You know, I, I think that you, you mentioned something there. And for all of our show prep, it's something that I didn't even put together. The fact that, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we had this huge idea of integration. Um, and not just... Um, you mean racial Not just racial integration, but we had the whole idea of 
uh, educating every student. So whether they have disabilities or not, oh, students, that's true. students right. who would otherwise not be in school. Who were not in school. In the, in the 40s, 50s, and even some 60s. To the middle 70s. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Those students weren't in school. And all of a sudden, now we're creating an education system where all of these students are in the schools. And so by the time that the 80s roll around, you know, we have a good decade or so where students with disabilities, uh, students with medical issues and things like that that would otherwise have been out of the schools, now they're in schools. So the school had to change. The, the way that we educate the students would have had to change. And had they, if they weren't prepared for that, if the schools weren't prepared for that, why would it be surprising that our performance overall would begin to drop by the time the 80s roll around and now we have all these students um, enrolled? That's, that's right, because in the 60s, we had, uh, we had racial integration of our schools. Right. Okay, we wanted to end desegregation. So Brown versus Board of Education was implemented in 1950. Well, it was it was decided in 1954. It wasn't implemented until the 60s. Right. And so we have this large influx of minority students coming into traditionally uh, segregated schools. Then in the 1970s, we have children with special needs coming in. So in two decades, we have the influx of two large groups of students that um, most schools were not prepared to do, and it took a while to digest these two groups. Right. So by the 80s, yeah, we were facing a formidable challenge. I mean, it was a, it was a completely new educational system with two large groups that had heretofore been excluded. Now they were included. So yes, um, there was a lowering of, of standards. There was a lowering of expectations because we were trying to figure out how to how to teach these students that we traditionally hadn't had to teach before. Right. So by the middle eighties, um, yeah, it probably was it there it probably was a time that reforms were needed. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so and so from that, again we we got the idea um, and, and sort of the roots uh, that have grown over time uh, of school accountability or, or just accountability in general, mm-hmm. uh, school choice and, and standard based curriculum. Right. And the idea was, and, and, you know, looking back and looking back at it with as neutral a mind as possible, mm-hmm. you know, you look back and you see, okay, again, accountability makes sense. Right. We, we want to make sure that every student is exposed to adequate education. Mm-hmm. Uh, school choice. We want to make sure that students can attend schools that fit their needs, that fit right. their interests, that fit mm-hmm. their um, st- you know where they are, what they want to do, and what what their goals are. Mm-hmm. And standard based curriculum again, it makes sense that we would have a curriculum that meets the standards that we say are appropriate for students at different grade levels. That's so right. mm-hmm. the, the the this is where we get the title. Those goals, those aspirations, are very sound. That mm-hmm. that those goals make sense. Right. Uh, and, and it makes sense that it would come at a time where our performance and our um, our outcome, i.e., um, school graduate high school graduates, weren't quite meeting the expectations that we would want them to have been able to meet. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, what does it mean to have a high school diploma? Right. What What are you able to do with a high school diploma? And initially, um, the the standards based movement uh, came out of the outcomes based. Um, right. Education, and um, but we could, 
it was decided that 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 was unworkable, that that an outcomes-based education was really unworkable, and that was abandoned back in the 70s or 80s. Um, However, uh, we did say, let's have standards, because I think it is important to say, if you're a high school graduate, you're able to do these things. And that, that's what drive, that's what standards are is, is as a high school graduate you're able you're able to read you're able to calculate you're able to write at some level right right okay. so if we can agree that the goals or the aspirations were sound mm-hmm. the problem then or, or the next step then is implementing right. these aspirations making these goals happen mm-hmm. and, and that in our opinion is where the cookie begins to crumble. That's right. That's, That's right. where we begin to have problems. And and I, I think that the, the prudent thing to do, and which is what we'll do in just a little bit, is step back and say, okay, these goals were are great. Is it even possible to meet these goals? That's right. And that is maybe the, the better question that we should be asking. Mm-hmm. Um, not that this program's failing or that program's failing. It should be what program can possibly succeed? Right. And that's what we'll get to in just a that's few minutes. That's right, because it's okay to have these, but when you implement, can you implement the same program everywhere in the United States? Right. You know, you might be able to implement it in New Haven, Connecticut, but you might not be able to implement it in Oakland, California. Right. Because they're so different. And that's why education has traditionally been a state issue. The right. federal government has not been involved in education because education was left to states and local states and local school districts to implement the policies as as they uh, fit in those communities right rather than having a national standard right mm-hmm. so let's 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 take each one in turn um, and and we'll we'll start with accountability um, so the idea of accountability is that the schools, the teachers, the administrations, the school boards, the school districts, that they will provide a certain level of instruction and opportunity for students. Again, sound goal. But, once again, the, the way that we're evaluating that, the way that we're defining that, begins to create and introduce the problems that we're experiencing. That's right. That's right. It's who is held accountable, what are they held accountable for, and how do we determine accountability? How do we measure whether they're meeting the accountability? Right. So it's who's and what and how. All right. So the who tends to be, uh, at some level, it tends to be the people with the less least amount of control over how we're assessing that's it. right so i'm, I'm going to hold you accountable <laughs> so not me right so we're, we're you know we've talked before about testing uh, right. and our concerns with testing and, and that's one way uh, well one of the main ways in which we're assessing accountability mm-hmm. so we're holding a teacher the principal the school district accountable and we're measuring that accountability based upon the student's test performance mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay in, in a lot of ways we're not hold, we're not holding the students accountable not really but that was the original goal that was the yeah. original goal right right but we're not holding the students accountable instead we are except in a couple of grades like uh for example third grade here right. in in florida if you don't pass these standards tests in third grade then the student's going to be retained 
um, in 10th grade. You, you can't graduate high school until you pass the 10th grade assessment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, sometimes we're holding the student accountable, but in all other grades, pretty much, the ones that are being held accountable are the teachers and the administrators, right. and that accountability is is assessed based upon school or, or student test performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make intuitive sense. I, I, I think on, on some level it sort of makes sense because, well, we're teaching them these skills. If you did a good enough job teaching them this these skills, they should do well on these tests. Right. So I, I think on a theoretical level, perhaps it, it can make some sense. But as soon as you apply any type of practical reasoning to it, mm-hmm. all of that sense falls apart. Right. Because when you talk about accountability, when you say, okay, who's, who is to be held accountable? Uh, well, the stakeholders. Who are the stakeholders? Well, first of all, students. So we want to hold them accountable. Then you have teachers. Then you have principals, building level administrators, and then you have central office administrators and on up the line. Okay, but you want to hold everybody accountable. Okay, so you develop systems, you put systems in place that measures accountability. I don't think there's anybody who disagrees with should teachers be held accountable. I think every employee should be held accountable. I think right. the, the person cooking the food or the person driving the bus, whatever your job is, you should be, there should be some accountability for doing it properly. So nobody disagrees with holding teachers accountable. The issue is, are they the only ones to hold accountable? Right. And that's what, well, let's talk more about implementation. Implementation of accountability. Because what we're saying is, it's that the implementation, it's in implementing these policies that the breakdowns are occurring, not the policies themselves. Right. Again, it's not... That the teacher, that the teachers, number one, shouldn't be held accountable. It's how we're assessing that accountability, and that's right. the implementation part that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many factors that go into a student's test performance that has nothing to do with the teacher. That the teacher has right. absolutely no control over. Uh, that introduces so much variability, so many right. extraneous factors mm-hmm. that it, it makes it a a, a poor estimate of teacher performance right. that you know again that's where the implementation falls apart we we can't measure s- teacher performance by student test score that's right we often hear in the this current round of reforms that well schools should be more like businesses um, there should be competition there should be accountability there should be that's fine but in business one of the central tenets is you never accept responsibility unless you have control. If you don't have control of something, you shouldn't have responsibility for it. Right. And the difference between a business and an education is that in education, the teacher doesn't have complete control right. of a student's health, whether they're fed, whether they're emotionally healthy, physically healthy, uh, what what education that child had before this particular grade. I mean, right. if I'm a fifth grade teacher, that child has been in school for five years before she came to me. Right. And so I, I have no control over what happened to her. I have no control whether her parents are divorced or not, or whether she, she's living in, a, in an impoverished, dangerous, uh, violent environment. I can't control that. Right. But, and, and that's the difference. If, if I'm in business and I have a, I have a sales, uh, I have a sales uh, um, area uh, uh, that, I'm, that I'm covering, 
I have control of my schedule. I have control of all that. Okay. So yes, I should be held accountable. If I'm, if I'm a doctor or a dentist, it's in my hands. That person's tooth is in my hands. I have complete control of the situation. Okay. But in education, we don't have that kind of control. Okay? Right. And so, so you, if we're going to use business principles, then let's use business principles. And if you don't have complete control, then you shouldn't be held responsible for the outcome. Right. Right. So, so that kind of touches on the, the issue with accountability. And the other is, you know, the way that we are or, or the way that it's being revealed that we're assessing accountability from the perspective of what test scores are being mm-hmm. used, uh, what we deem adequate and what we deem inadequate as it relates to um, uh, test scores. And, and so there is some randomness. And, and that, I think, has been, you know, if one, there's one thing that we've heard from teachers about the most, and that is what seems to be a complete... Um, a randomness. I don't know. The, the, I don't know what the right word is. How variable it is. Their evaluate the the, the scores are uh, assessed. The, there's the cut scores change every year. That's right. So one year, uh, this level, you know, you, you have to score a uh, a four. Right. But a four for this year um, may be comparably significantly different than a four last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these seem to be, there's the word I'm looking for, arbitrary. Right. The, the scores are arbitrary. And it seems to be, and there are some uh, conspiracy-minded individuals yeah. mm-hmm. who believe that those scores are determined based upon what we want to happen politically. So if we want it to look like more people are, are doing well, then we set the cut scores low so that mm-hmm. more people pass. Which is what some states did. Right. I mean, when they were giving their tests, they made, in some states, the, the uh, passing score was lower. You had to get fewer questions correct, and you could still get a passing score. In other states, they raised that score. Right. And so from state to state, the... Um, the the score varied from state to state. You, you could get a low score here and pass. You could get a high score here and not pass. Right, mm-hmm. right. And, and and again, there there is some things that maybe I guess one could find a way to argue that that would be okay in some situations. But again, the issue is we are holding teachers accountable based upon those scores. That's right. And. There, there's nothing again that the teacher has control over that. Right. Uh, there, there's nothing about that that the teacher can say. Well, you know, we have to do this or we have to do that. Or if I do this better or that better, they could do exactly the same performance this year as they did last year, and they did they met their accountability standards last year, but may not meet it this year, right. despite the fact that they're doing exactly the same job. Yeah, nothing has changed about them. Only the score has changed, and it makes them look more effective last year than this year. Right. And which had nothing to do with the teacher. Right. Only something to do with the score. Right. Right. So so the again the, the way that we're implementing accountability is greatly flawed. Mm-hmm. And so instead of just talking about it critically, let's let's maybe come up with a couple of ideas of how we could do it more appropriately, more adequately. Uh, the first thing is let's develop assessment methods specific to assessing teacher accountability, t- mm-hmm. teacher performance. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he- here's, here's the difference from what we're doing now. 
What we're doing now is we're developing tests specific to look at student academic performance. We're, or we're, or their, their mastery of the standards. Right. Their, okay. their mastery of particular things. Those tests are developed specific for that purpose. And we, we've right. talked about this in previous podcasts. But when we develop tests, tests are only valid if they assess adequately the skills or the phenomenon for which it was developed. Okay, so the tests are being developed to measure student performance, student mastery of uh, standards. The current tests are not created to, for the specific purpose of assessing teacher performance. That's right. So let's develop tests that are specific to assess teacher performance. Mm-hmm. The way that we do that is we operationally define what we mean by teacher performance. We create uh, items or, or test um, test items or, or test procedures that assess those specific definitions. Mm-hmm. And so if we want to assess, just using simple examples, if we want to assess teacher performance in one part by uh, teacher attendance, well, to be a good teacher, you have to be at school more days than not, or you have to be at you have to be in the classroom most days. Um, then there's that one way. Um, whether it's um, you set levels of standards based upon the various modes of education that a teacher performs. So, you, you know, several times a year you have um, evaluators, quote-unquote quote evaluators or observers, come in and watch the teacher to make sure that they're using multimodal um, uh, instructional techniques, that they're, you know, working with the students, that they're communicating with parents at home, that they're um, providing students with a a variety of educational opportunities. That is looking at teacher accountability, if that is so how we define uh, teacher accountability. But you can tell by some of these descriptions that that's very different than having uh, little Susie in the classroom sit down and take a reading test. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. With, with what, what I'm talking about, we're looking specifically at teacher behavior. That is how we're going to assess teacher accountability. Not by seeing what the students do, but let's look at what the teacher's doing, evaluate that, and then score her performance, his or her performance, based upon what she or he is actually doing. That is how we would do that. That is how you create a test for accountability. That's right. Uh, teacher decide, accountability. Decide what you want your teach. We have to decide what we expect of our teachers, how we expect them to look, how we expect them to perform, how we expect students to perform who, who are in their classes. There are many um, ingredients, but we have to specify what those are. Instead, what we did at the implementation level is we said, we're going to judge teachers based on how students did on tests doesn't make any sense. You know, right. let's go back to the dentist analogy or the, or the physicians, uh, the surgeon. Okay, we're going to hold the f- surgeon accountable. The surgeon can only do his or her job. Right. And when you give the patient instructions to go home and do these five things to avoid infection, if the patient doesn't do those five things, it's not the surgeon's fault. Right. Okay? The surgeon did his or her job correctly. Okay? Right. So don't hold the surgeon accountable. 
you know, the dentist does, okay, but don't chew on this for three days. Right. And you go home and have peanuts and start cracking the tooth. That they, that's not the dentist's fault. Right. Okay? So unless we have control, we, we can only be held accountable for what we have some control over. Right. Yeah. Same goes for teachers. And, and, and thinking about that, you know, the physicians will refuse to do a medical procedure if you're not compliant with sure. the preoperative with, um, procedures. Right. You know, because they are not going to put themselves in a situation where they are held accountable for the surgical outcome that they didn't have control over. they don't have control You didn't do what we were told. But again, for some reason, we don't think about the same thing for teachers. Teachers, by and large, teachers work hard. They do their job. They work for more than seven hours a day. They work more. They, they work over the summer. We, we both mm-hmm. um, work with teachers here in our area, and they are working throughout the summer. During holidays, they're working, and, and people tend to um, criticize teachers. Oh, well, they only work 10 months a, mm-hmm. a year. They only work you know, from, from 7 to 3 and, and all of these criticisms. No, teachers work hard, and especially they work hard when they are – um, when we believe in them, when we when we tell them that we know that they're doing a good job, that they're doing everything mm-hmm. they can, so why why punish them for things that are outside of their control mm-hmm. instead of creating a system that the teachers will probably agree with? I, right. I think that if we told teachers this is how we're going to hold you accountable, they would look at that and say, "I have control over those things." Or better yet, why don't we say to the teachers, "Develop a develop an accountability system." Uh, for your profession, right? Okay. They will, right? They'll do that. You give teachers that, that task. You task them with developing an accountability system. They'll come up, and I would predict that their accountability system would be better than anything that's currently in place. Right. Problem is, we don't allow them to develop their own accountability system. Right. We allow other professional organizations to do that. The American Medical Association, the American Psychological. We develop our own code of ethics. We develop our own accountability systems. Right. Why not do the same for teachers? Right. Right. So. So again, the, the, the idea of accountability is good. We just have to find a better way to um, implement, to implement accountability. Uh, accountability. Right. And if we do that, that in, in many ways fixes a, a huge problem that we're having right now. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move to the idea of school choice. Um, again, it's something that came out of this new area of school reform uh, that has come under a great deal of uh, criticism. That's right. School choice was first, uh, the the earlier, um, well, we've always had school choice because we've had parochial schools right. since the founding of the, of the, um, of the, the country. Um, so we have had, but, but typically uh, you had to pay for those alternatives, right. uh, either private schools or parochial schools, but there was some, some tuition attached to it. Um, the idea that parents should have a choice of where they send their kids to school, really came out of the 1980s, uh, right. as far as I can tell. Uh, prior to that, you went to the school that you were zoned for. The only time that changed was during the um, desegregation, where we had forced busing. Right. And we would we would take children out of their neighborhood schools to try to achieve um, educational balance. Except for that, um, most, but even that was based on the neighborhood school. Right. 
you know, with the school that um, areas were divided into school districts. And if you lived in that school district, you went to that school. Right. Um, even in the little town that I grew up in in Pennsylvania, there were two elementary schools. If you lived closer to this one, you went there. If you would live closer to the other one, you went to that one. Uh, and then we all got together for, for a junior high school. But um, the idea that parents should have choice came out of the 1980s, and it was a model, again, it was driven by a business model. Um, the, one of the earliest references was uh, in a debate between the two presidential contenders, um, George H.W. Bush, uh, Bush I, the elder Bush, and Michael Dukakis, and they were having a debate um, as part of the presidential election process, and in that debate, uh, George Bush mentioned what his goals for education would be, and one of them was school choice. Okay? Right. Because uh, if we have, if we give parents a choice, they parents will be driven to take their kids out of underperforming schools and put them into higher performing schools, and that competition will create a better educational system. So the idea of school choice really came out of the a business model. The more competition you have, the better the better each school will be. Poor schools will get better to attract students. Right. That was the idea. So that came out of this first, that was in 1988 that, that uh, George Bush first proposed that. Right. And, and again, it, it's based upon a sound idea, sound aspiration. Right. Um, and how it's evolved, again, well, I guess even how it's evolved uh, at its core isn't such a bad idea. You know, what we have now, you know, we, we have charter and magnet schools that specialize in the arts or some that specialize mm-hmm. in technology. And, and if your child is one who is prone to any of those particular areas, to have the opportunity to put your child into one of those schools, again, make, makes That's sense. Attractive it, idea. It, it yeah. makes intuitive sense. Again, the problem has been with the implementation. Mm-hmm. And what the implementation has done, for, for lack of a, a better phrase, is it has created two educational systems. That's right. Mm-hmm. We have situations now where, um, yes, you can put your child in a lottery to attend one of these choice schools, but the problem has been that those schools have more of a choice than you do. Um, more of a choice than anyone else. So if your child goes there and doesn't perform at a particular standard that they expect, then they can ask your child to leave. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where uh, the, 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 the idea of school choice has really started to take a turn, maybe like, as you were saying, towards more of a business model. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the, the, really the idea of school choice is, is, is an illusion, it's not really school choice. It's more of a school lottery. Yeah, I like your phrase about the schools have more choice than the parents have. Right. Okay. Because when you set up in our community and in most communities, if you set up magnet and charter schools, um, they're not they're not really schools of choice. Um, you can say, well, this is a this is a this is a school for children interested in the arts, or this is a school for kids who are interested in science. Um, okay, maybe, but what has evolved is not not a choice, but rather a two-tiered school system. Right. So that some schools are allowed to select which students they want to keep, 
And what has evolved is that choice, is, is the schools are allowed to decide. If you can't keep up, if you can't do well, if you can't control your behavior, then you really can't go to this school. That's the implementation problem. And um, that's what's happened here locally. And I think that's happened around the country. That, you know, we, in the, when we were talking about accountability, we were saying teachers can't be held accountable for what students are doing. Well, how do you solve that problem? Well, take only the students who are over it. Take only the highest achieving students. Right. Develop some system where all you have to deal with are the high achieving, well behaved students. Right. That's what's evolved. Um, and so, um, our charter and magnet school systems. And, I, and this is my apologies to all of my friends who are in um, charter and magnet who teach and, and send their kids to charter and magnet schools. Um, I say, I'm sorry for talking about this, but the fact is. In most communities, magnet and charter schools get to select the students that they deal with. Right. Very different. If they can't perform there, they're sent back to the public schools. There are exceptions. Uh, we had right. a wonderful conversation with one of the local um, charter schools. Right. And they they keep all the students who are sent to them. It's, right. it's like a neighborhood school. Right. They keep all of them. And, and we applaud you for that. That what what we would hope is that more school administrators would visit that school yes. and and see how they're doing it because this is a charter school that doesn't get rid of underperforming, misbehaving students. Right, yes. He, they invited us they to invited do a us. visit, and it, mm -hmm. it, it was a wonderful a experience. Great, great day for us. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but I think even that principal recognizes that he is in the minority as right. it relates to how uh, uh, charter and magnet schools are managed, mm -hmm. um, and and he even mentioned during that that meeting that we had with him that he has attempted to uh, foster and encourage change, um, and it just hasn't worked out mm -hmm. because the vast majority of those systems um, focus on the idea of we need to be high performing and to be high performing we have to have students who fit this mold mm -hmm. and we have to get rid of students who don't that's right uh, if so, i'm being judged on student performance i'm going to try to get the highest achieving best performing students in my school right so to some extent this what has happened with school choice is is at least in part um, a, a manifestation of that accountability that's right. issue that we were talking mm -hmm. about a minute ago you know, it, it would make sense, uh, and you know, it, it's you, you can argue both sides of it. it. It makes sense that schools would say, "Hey, if you're going to hold me accountable, I want to make sure that the people that I have here are going to work hard and they're going to do what they need to do." That's right. It, it would make sense that they would say that. You know, it, it just creates the problem of we have these really high achieving strong schools mm -hmm. uh, the students who don't fit there are sent back to the other schools and again the, the way that these issues of accountability and school choice overlap is what that leaves is is that the schools that have these really strong students get incentives they get extra funding because they That's did right. well mm -hmm. and the schools that didn't do so well they get they don't get those extra resources and so now you know the schools who really don't need the extra resources get extra resources, <laughs> and the schools that really need the extra resources don't get them because they don't have high achievers. Imagine if you imagine if you were a twin, and your twin worked in a magnet school where they got to keep the students they wanted and they could get rid of the students they didn't want, and you worked in a zone school, you worked in a neighborhood school, and every time the magnet school 
didn't want a student any longer because that student was underachieving or misbehaving or was emotionally unstable. They simply advised that student to go back to their neighborhood school where your twin is a teacher. You're now held to this as a teacher. Whether your students are in the zone school or the magnet school, they're all taking the same state test. Okay, We know who's going to do better, but you and your twin are going to be held to the same standard, even though your twin gets to select the students he or she wants, and you get whatever they don't want, and yet you're held to the same standard. So if your students do poorly, you get fewer resources compared to your twin whose students do well, they get more resources. So the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. We've talked about the Matthew effect uh, before, Matthew from the gospel, um, that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And that's what's happened in most school districts around the country. Right, right. And so, again, this is where the idea of school choice begins to fall apart. Um, and again, the implementation falls apart because if it was the way in which it was initially designed, where if you wanted your child to go to the school, it could, he or she could go to that school, it, it creates a, um, a leveling effect of these different performances. Because certainly there are low-performing, misbehaving students who are very good at technology, and so they would do they would perhaps do well with this additional technological exposure in one of these magnet schools, but because they misbehave or because their test scores aren't quite high enough, they're not allowed to go there. Well, if if we leveled the playing field, we if we removed the lottery system, and we said, okay, um, and basically provided similar resources, general resources to all schools, mm-hmm. then you know then it would be okay. Then it, then the idea of school choice would balance out because if you talk to parents, one of the main reasons that parents want to send their kids to some of these charter and magnet schools isn't necessarily because of the extra – isn't because of the academic or extracurricular focus. Right. My kids um, – one that you were apologizing to a moment ago. My kids go to a, a charter school. Well, the charter school they go to special, specifically focuses on technology. Well, my kids like technology, but they're not. neither of them are going into the field of technology in any way. One of the reasons we wanted them to go to, and this I think is a consequence of the system that we're in, is it's a strong school, and I know that they're going to get a good education there. Right. Well, um, if all of the schools had equal resources and were doing well and could provide them with a, regu- a good education, they would go to their the regular local school. school. If all I, schools were equal, which they should be, right, a, a child could go to any school in that school district, right, and get a good education. And get a good education, and and that you know because both of my kids are in high school, and, and I know some of the things that happen in the local high school that they would be zoned for. I don't want them exposed to that uh, because it's not managed. It's not, it doesn't meet the expectations that I would have for my, my kids' school. Your select, as I did, your select, we selected schools that were, um, had fewer distractions, had, were less dangerous. 
Right. Um, had a higher level of kind of college preparatory curriculum that most students were engaged in. We chose that. We didn't choose it for their focus. Right. We chose it for their atmosphere and their culture. Right. That shouldn't be a choice that parents have to make. Right. Every school should provide that culture. Absolutely. But in fact, they don't. Why don't they? Because it depends on the students who populate those schools. If you get a certain kind of student, you can have a school that's, that's peaceful and orderly and safe. If you don't have those students, then you can't have that kind of school. It's much more difficult to have that kind of school. Right. And if we, we think about what we're talking about is when you, re, when you create school choice the way that we have it now, you, it's a, a disproportionate representation of those more challenging students at some schools That's than right. would be at, at schools in general. They're not allowed to go to the magnet and charter schools. Right. we got to put them someplace. Where do we put them? We put them in zone. We drop them off in zone schools. Right. So instead of, you know, this, th- these, this group of challenging students, academically and behaviorally challenging students, instead of them being um, sort of Dispersed. spread across f- several schools, mm-hmm. they're all condensed into one school. They're starting to concentrate in certain schools. Right. That's right. Which we predicted was going to happen, that if you open up enough, you open up enough private charter and magnet schools, if the underachieving students with behavioral and emotional problems can't go to those schools, then we have to put them someplace else. Right. And over time, you're going to get a higher concentration of those underachieving students in certain buildings. Right. They're going to become unmanageable. We've been predicting that for 10 years. And, and then the, the icing on the cake is the fact that then those schools aren't, they underperform. And then they're not given, so they're not awarded the resources, additional resources that they need yeah. to develop a, a way to manage that. Or one of my favorites, we said, we're going to close these underachieving schools. Go ahead and close it. My question to you is, where are you going to put the students who were in that building? Right. You either create another school just like that, or you have to put them in the magnet and charter and, and high-achieving schools. Are you going to keep them there? Right. Um, go ahead and close the school. What are you going to do with the students who are there? Right, right. So, so the, the solution to this problem is opening up choice schools the way that they were intended and allowing students to attend the schools that fit their needs. With fit. A, and with a 0% rejection rate. Right. You know, yes, you can keep the, but you're going to keep who you take. Right. And, and then you, to balance that, you have to take some of these resources that you're giving the high-achieving schools that really don't need it and give those resources to the schools that are struggling a little bit so that they can build up their mm-hmm. resources, that they can build up their um, the, resor- the things that they have available right. to students so mm-hmm. that they can perform at the same level as these other schools. And then there's no reason for me or for you or for anyone else to send our kids to uh, schools that we know that they're going to get a good education because we know that whatever school they go to, they're going to get a good education. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, when, we, when we level the resources across schools, again, we tend to find teachers are going to do a good job. That's right. Uh, principals, for the most part, are going to do a good job. Right. So if we give them the resources they need to do the job that they want to do, they're going to meet those expectations. Right. And then that resolves the issue of, well, we want to send them to this school or that school. You know, my kids don't need a technology school. Right. 
they don't. They they need just a regular high school where they're going to get some of the some of the um, the educa- educational exposure that they want to meet the goals that they have. Um, but if it's you, you want it, it as a parent, both you and I wanted a rigorous curriculum that would prepare them for college, and a safe and civil, right. peaceful, tranquil, orderly school environment. Right. That's what we were opting for. Right. Okay? That's what we were choosing. Well, doesn't every parent, most parents want that. Right. Do we have enough schools to provide that? Not in this, but we don't. Right. I don't think we do in any area. Right. We certainly right. don't here. And, and you know, there, there's certainly some grade levels that are more serious than others. Right. Middle school. Middle school's tough. Middle school is right. challenging. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, high schools. High schools are getting really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the, the public high schools you keep using the word safe. Some of the high schools are pretty dangerous places. They're not safe places. Um, right. we, we see videos and we see reports on the news all the time about these teacher-student interactions, um, fights and altercations. altercations. Right. Um, you know, they're not safe, but it's not that they're not safe because the teachers don't want them to be safe. It's not that they're not safe because the administration doesn't want them safe. They're not safe because the schools don't have the resources they need to to make the place safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we balanced out, if we leveled out, it comes down to money. If, it, like, if we level out the resources, mm-hmm. I, I think we would see a shift in that. Right. So, all right. Uh, the, the third area is standards-based curriculum. Now, we're going to talk... I think we should have, we should have all of the information we need to um, manage uh, 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 Common Core next week. We're going to get right. into the history of Common Core. We promise. But but let's talk very briefly about uh, standard based curriculum. Once again, it makes sense that everyone would say we need a system of make of ensuring that schools are providing adequate education that they're providing an adequate curriculum to for the students we have heard horror stories about schools who are using out-of-date textbooks uh, textbooks that um, are presenting information to students that have now been that has now been disproven um, and but those are the resources that the schools have and so the idea of saying no we need a a a curriculum that meets these expectations, that meets these standards. That makes sense. The unfortunate problem with the implementation of that again is that we have now resulted in what we're going to what we're calling Common Core, um, and again we'll talk more about that next week. But what that's resulted in is this idea that um, well one aspect of common core that that we're frustrated with is the idea that all schools are going to not only teach the same curriculum but they're going to teach it at the same pace uh, that uh, we've already heard from teachers who say if i'm teaching something in class and the administrator comes in and i'm not on the right page on that right day then i'll be written up that's right and so we're 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 structuring it so tightly Mm -hmm. that um, that we're really making it difficult for teachers to teach. That's right. Because on Tuesday, you have to be on page 54 because all of the other teachers in our district are going to be mm-hmm. on page 54 on that day. Right. Again, the idea 
is okay because what that means is, and, and sort of the argument for that is, so if a student, you know, we live in a very um, small world um, and students are transient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that, you know, a student could pick up one day and leave this school district and go to another school district um, and we would want them to be able to pick up and, and move on very quickly, uh, that's a great idea. That's that's. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic idea because you and I have both worked with students before who almost lose entire academic years. That's right. Because mm-hmm. they, the, the mom or dad got a new job in a new area. They had to move. And when they got there, that school was, you know, six months ahead of where his school was in math. Yeah, we encounter it all the time. Living and teaching in Florida, you have many, many people coming from all parts of the country, especially the north, coming to Florida and students will often say, well, we've already covered this or we haven't gotten to this in our school yet, you know, which, right. which happens from state to because because education is a state issue. The standards, the curriculum, the expectations vary from state to state. Right. And, and frequently, I know that years ago, 30 or 40 years ago, uh, there was always this complaint that the schools, the students from the north were ahead of students in the south for some reason. I don't know whether that was true or not, but we frequently hear that. Um, so what Common Core does is it levels the curriculum right. so that every state is pursuing the same standards. That's a nice goal. That's a good aspirational goal. Um, it's a good goal to try to pursue. But in the process of implementing, we've lost, we've given up something in the process. What we've given up is a developmentally appropriate curriculum. Right. Because the question then becomes, who decides what the standard is? If right. you're going to have standards-based education, who decides to get on what the standard is? Who decides what the standard is? What should, one of the things you've talked about frequently is what we expect kindergarten students to do. Right. The writing requirement of a kindergarten student. Who decided that a kindergarten, that a five or six-year-old child should be able to write a complete paragraph? Right. Who made that decision? Right. And the other thing about standards is that whoever tests... It's the tests that will determine the standard. Right. So whoever builds the test is, in effect, determining what the standards are. If I test a skill, for example, we typically expect third graders to know the multiplication tables. That's Mm -hmm. traditionally been one of the developmentally appropriate skills. In third grade, you learn the multiplication tables. Um, That's a developmentally appropriate skill. But the when the math standards were first um, promulgated for uh, many of the state tests, the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics didn't agree with the standards. They thought they were not appropriate. Didn't matter. The standards got pushed through anyway. So, so when we talk about standards-based education, the two important questions we should ask are, who's developing the standards and how are they being tested? Right, right. And, and I like what you're saying about the developmentally appropriateness, uh, the, the developmental appropriateness of uh, these standards, because all students, um, I'm, I'm try- while you were talking, I was trying to think of how to best explain this. Um, we're both developmentalists mm-hmm. at, at some level. We, we have training in, in early childhood development. Um, and what we know about development, what we know about cognitive development, neurological development to some extent, um, but especially neuropsychological development, we know that every um, eight-year-old isn't 
at the exact same level. That's right. Neurocognitively, neuropsychologically, they're not at the exact same level. And so you can have a classroom full of eight, eight-year-olds, um, and part of the students are going to be able to keep up with the curriculum that we have. Um, another part of the um, eight, eight-year-olds are going to have difficulty, right. and another part of the eight-year-olds are going to be like, this is so easy, I learned this last week. That's right. Um, and I think all of our listeners knows, know, all know what the normal curve is. Right. And a normal curve is you have some who are ahead of it, most are in the middle of it, and some are trailing it. Right. Okay? For all human abilities, including school curriculum. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the issue then is, um, is with one of, one of the issues with what we're talking about with standards-based curriculum is the issue of timing. Mm-hmm. The expectation is, is that you're going to or the teacher is going to present information at a particular pace. Right. Again, I get the reason why we have that expectation. The problem is, is that everyone in the class is not going to meet it at that pace. They're not going to attain the information, uh, absorb it, master it at the pace that the curriculum expects. And so what then happens, let's say, let's take math, for example, a, a subject that builds upon itself. If you don't have Monday's skill... Right. The skill that's taught on Monday, by the time Wednesday comes around, you're not going to be able to keep up. And so slowly but definitely surely, that gap between where you should be and where you are continues to increase. That's right. By Wednesday, you're two days behind. Right. And, and there's nothing built in, as far as we can tell, and we're still doing some research with it, there's nothing that we can tell that's built into the idea of Common Core and what we're doing with this curriculum, uh, standards-based curriculum. We have nothing built in to account for that. Because, again, the idea is you're going to teach this skill on this day, then you will teach this skill on the next day, and so on and so on and so on. So teachers don't have the opportunity to go back and remediate or, or fix things. Even when we build in remediation, and this is something that kills me about uh, response to intervention, is the idea is, okay, well, the teacher is going to do that. Well, how can the teacher provide these additional interventions if at the same time they're supposed to be teaching at this pace these subjects to all of these other students. We're kind of getting back to a situation where we're asking asking an awful lot from a person who is in charge of 20 to 25 students who all learn at different paces, um, you know, for seven and a half hours a day. I have another, there's another way to to put, you know, we often hear about um, parents are concerned because their child is bored in school. But when, when all kids were just dumped into the same classroom, we frequently, frequent parent complaints, my child's bored or my child's getting left behind. What we're, what we're, when we select standards, one of the questions that I have that I haven't been able to get answered, are we, are the standards based on the maximum that a student in a particular grade should learn? Is it the most that we possibly expect? Or is it the minimum standard that we expect? And I don't think that's been defined yet. In other words, like let's take a let's take a first grader. They should learn about two hundred and fifty basic sight words. Okay. Right. Traditionally we we try to teach those words to first graders. 
Well, is that the minimum that they should do, or is that the maximum that they should do? Right. Because if Common Core is the maximum, then we're going we're gonna to lose a pretty high percentage of students because they're right. simply not going to be able to do it. Right. If Common Core, it, the Common Core standards are, are, are set and based upon the maximum. If they're high, right. high expectations. Rigorous. Right. Rigorous curriculum. Right. We're going to be missing a large, a double-digit number of uh, right. percentage of students. Um, if it's at the minimum, if we're saying, you know, for example, we want kindergarten students to write a paragraph. Mm-hmm. Was that the maximum expectation? Right. Okay. Because the minimum expectation, if you if the Common Core is a minimum expectation, then a lot of students are going to be bored. Right. Because they already know that stuff coming into kindergarten. Right. 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 Yeah. So the again, where those standards are are um, are set That's uh, right. plays an important role. There, there, there's another piece of this too that I think that I find fascinating, and, and that is. We often forget, I think, that the United States is as large as it is. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, you know this about me. I'm a big soccer fan. Yeah, I heard that. And, you know, there, there's often discussions about, well, you know, with all of the talent that the United States has in soccer, our, our national soccer team should be more competitive when it mm-hmm. comes to these international, like the World Cup and, and right. the Olympics and things like that. One of the arguments that I've heard, or not arguments, that's not the right word. One of the explanations that I've heard as to why we are, we are not as competitive as we should be is the diversity within the United States. And I'm not talking about diversity of people. I'm talking about diversity as it relates to um, climate, um, geographic regions, um, exposures and things like that. It is very different to play soccer in Florida than it is to play soccer in Minnesota. Uh, the temperature is different. Uh, the humidity is different. The way that the ball, uh, the ball's response to the climate is different. And so because we have people from all over the United States trying to come together to play one single style, mm-hmm. um, it, it's more, much more difficult than, say, England that, you know, southern England and northern England, you know, sure, there, it's a, there's a little bit of variability, but by and large, it's pretty consistent, you know, temperature-wise. And you can get from one side of the country to the other side of the country in a couple of hours, whereas in the United States, it's very different. So the, the issue is, is that, and how this relates to what we're talking about, the regional differences that we have in exposure to resources, that we have in exposure to um, extracurricular things, as we have to um, early childhood opportunities, the regional differences are vast here in the United States. So to assume that a student, a third grade student in Florida, is similar to a third grade student in New York or a third grade student in California is a little bit um, naive because we're very, very different. Mm-hmm. Life in Florida is different than life in California, is different than life in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And to expect that the students are going to perform similar on similar tasks in these different areas mm-hmm. is not really having an appreciation of cultural 
and, and geographic region That's regional right. differences. Our, our coasts are vastly different from the interior, particularly Appalachia, right, um, and the areas of Arkansas. Um, they're very very different, right? Because it's a completely different cultural experience in those countries. Uh, in those areas of the country, compared to, um, to compared to the the uh, coastlines, right, or the large cities, right. Mm-hmm. So, the idea that we can standardize these issues across the United States um, doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. Right. There, there, there's, it's not intuitive. You 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 can't look at that and say, oh well, okay, so. You know, if a student moves from Florida to Tennessee, we should expect them to pick up on exactly the same page in exactly the same textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's that's right. I mean, even as you say it, it's like okay, that that doesn't even make sense. Right. How is that going to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, so so the idea again of standards based curriculum is is a good aspiration, but the way that we're implementing it is flawed. Um, the way to fix this is a little bit more challenging. Um, mm-hmm. Because it, it's difficult to have standards-based curriculum while at the same time uh, being responsive to individual student needs. That's right. Um, and to respond to the variability across geographic regions. Mm-hmm. Because, again, the United States is just so large. Florida is yep. so large. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. When you think about these big states like Florida, Texas, California, the, oh. these, or even the, the really, really dense mm-hmm. uh, states like New York and, and some of the New England states. Right. Um, it, to, to think that across this vast area, we can have one curriculum mm-hmm. that is going to be consistent, it, it, it's just not going to work. Texas, I think, is a good example. I think any state is, but I think Texas is probably the best example because you have a city like, you have cities like Dallas and Houston which are extraordinarily wealthy and have, you know, all kinds of resources. And you go out to West Texas where you have 12 students in a graduating class and you have to play eight-man football because you don't have enough uh, guys, right. you don't have enough students to, to man to have 11 players on a football team. That experience in West Texas is vastly different right. than the students in Houston, Texas. Right. Okay, So even within a state... Right. You have vast regional differences, but that's right. the same everywhere. It's very different being in South Tampa compared to the um, the northern panhandle right. of uh, Florida, right. you know, where you're out in a, in a pine forest somewhere uh, versus living in South Tampa with all the resources they have there. Right, right. It's vastly so, different. So, but to resolve... To, to, to begin to address this issue in a reasonable way, mm-hmm. one of the things we have to do is recognize developmentally appropriate education. That's, I think that once we, we return to that, I think that that begins to shift the model completely. That's right, because if you talk about standards as a preparation for college, in other words, let's say your goal is to prepare students for college, well, that's one set of standards. Then, then if you're going to prepare students for college, you say, well, this is where they need to be when they graduate. Right. Well, then you work backwards and mm-hmm. say, well, if you have to be there in 12th grade, you have to be here in 9th grade, you have to be here in 7th grade. Remember, I think it was California. They tried to implement Algebra 1 in 8th grade. I think it was when oh, Schwarzenegger was the governor. I think California decided that every student would take Algebra in the 8th grade. 
That experiment lasted about two years, and they simply they found that, that, that not all students could handle algebra in the eighth grade. Some could, mm-hmm. but most couldn't, okay? And that's the way we're doing things here now, I think, in most of Florida, is that if a student can handle algebra in eighth grade, they take it, and if not, they take pre-algebra, right. and they take algebra in ninth grade. So even in little experiments where they said, let's, do, let's try it in math, didn't work very well. So it really depends on what your what your outcome, what the goal is. If you're preparing students for college, that's one set of standards. If you're preparing them for work, that's another set of standards. Right. Okay? Um, but the, but regardless of all that, what we're saying is, whatever standard it is, it should be developmentally appropriate. We've right. lost a developmentally appropriate curriculum in favor of standards. Right, right. And, and so what you do, I, I, I think that the model that would help correct some of these issues is you have a developmentally appropriate system for elementary school. Right. You know, you, you look at what the research says kindergartners should know, and That's you right. set those as the expectations. Mm-hmm. And the same thing for first through fifth grade, fifth mm-hmm. or sixth grade. Um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit torn about having sixth graders in middle school. I think that I think we should go back to a, a junior high school t- type yeah. of approach. But anyways, um, so if we're going to do it, do it this way, what you have is a developmentally appropriate K through five. Mm-hmm. Once a student gets into sixth or seventh grade, right. we begin to think about where their where their goals are, where are they where are they going, and not that we're going to ask a twelve year old, "Hey, what are you going to be when you grow right. up?" and expect a realistic answer. Right. However, generally speaking, we know by sixth or seventh grade if somebody is on a high school track or if they're on a on a, on a going to work track or a vocational, or a vocational track. track. Right. Um, we can figure that out pretty mm-hmm. pretty early on. In fact, you know, if if a student has an IEP, for example, for whatever, if they right. have an IEP, by the time they're 14 years old, so seventh or eighth grade, by the time they're 14 years old, they're marking on the IEP whether they're going to be a um, regular diploma student or or not. Right. Um. So we're already making some of those decisions early for on some. Mm-hmm. for some. So why why would we not then if we're going to have high stakes testing, why would we not set that, you know, at a 6th or 7th grade uh level, evaluate them so that we can say you're on track to go to college, mm-hmm. you're on track probably for more of a trade school. Now, if a student is on track for uh, for trade school, and they say, no, I really want to go to college, sure, go on the college track. Here's the level of expectation that you right. have to meet, and here's the things that you have to do. Right. But making it, making it known that, okay, you're going to be on this more rigorous track, mm-hmm. um, and so you're going to have to work harder because you don't quite have the basic skills yet, so you need to do some of this remediation, and you need to do some of these things to get on this track more soundly. Uh, but then you have the high school track, and then... For those students who are not on a college track, right. students who say, yes, I want to go to college, but maybe their skills aren't quite there, and after reassess them later on to see if they're, they're, they're catching up and getting where they need to be, all of the other students, the students that are on the um, more trade school, technical uh, track, start providing them resources and training to prepare them for work, to That's prepare right. them to enter into the workforce once they finish high school. They can enter the workforce and make a living. Right. You know, right now, 
we have the estimates range between 55 and 60 percent of uh, students are not going to college. That's right. But they're not ready for work they're either. They're not ready for work, right? We're not giving them any skills, any any trades, any um, anything to prepare them to be self-sufficient once they finish uh, high school. That's right. The new law that's working its way through Congress that's going to replace No Child Left Behind says ready for work, ready for college or career. Okay, but in fact, the standards don't reflect college or don't yet reflect college or career because right. what we want most high school students to do is be ready for college most are not most are not even going to go to college right okay um and so we have to start changing the standards especially at the secondary level at the high school level changing the standards to reflect what students actually do when they leave they have to become more rigorous for those going to college and different not less rigorous different for those going into vocations. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that if, if you take all of these things that we're talking about, what happens is issues across all three areas of accountability, school choice, and standard-based curriculum. If, if we address these limitations in all three of them, I think what we would find is that all of the major problems mm-hmm. would begin to disappear. Mm-hmm. If you know, when we go back to school choice, if we removed um, or if we corrected high school from the perspective of now you're either going to be uh, college track or you're going to be career track, that would relieve some of the stress and and issues that result in educational problems and behavioral problems in those students because now they're not being asked to do things that is well without uh, well outside their ability their ability um, or interest or interest mm-hmm. and that would resolve that resolve we know that that resolves behavioral issues right. we know that that resolves uh, lots of other problems mm-hmm. so all of these overlap um, in, in some ways and that if and if we begin to address them adequately mm-hmm. uh, appropriately developmentally appropriately i think that we would find that a lot of the issues resolve Spontaneously, they'll, they'll resolve on their own. We don't have to specifically address it because it's going to fix itself. But we have to address these limitations. Right. Um, and, and so, again, with the standards-based curriculum, it has to be developmentally appropriate early on. And then we have to do something to recognize that some students are going to go college track. Some students are going to go just, go, just want to go to work. Um, That's right. That's, no that's just what they want to do. They want to drive trucks or they want to work construction with their family. You know, your right. family owns a construction company, and that's all. That's what you want to do. You should have the ability to do that with no shame. You haven't failed. Right. You made a different choice. Right. Right. Yeah. I have two more things I want to say. Okay. But I want to wait till you're finished. No, that's go ahead. One of the things that Dr. Bernie and I are saying here is that if you trace. The current educational reforms, if you trace them historically, we sort of lost our way. And we lost our way with No Child Left Behind. That was in 2001. Um, and we are saying that, that, that I think No Child Left Behind took the country and t- took education in the United States in a very different direction. All right. But two examples. When George Bush the first, but the elder Bush developed his goals 2000. The first one was every child would start school ready to learn. 
that's not education. That's social policy. Right. That means we're addressing social policies that are preventing children from being ready to learn in kindergarten. Right. That was one thing. Somehow that got lost. You mm-hmm. know, accountability stayed and school choice stayed. Other things like school choice, being first in the world in reading and math, those all stayed in, in, in the goals. But this one somehow was left out. Um, second thing, when um, President Clinton signed um, the educa- uh, the um, Goals 2000, the Education of America Act, it's called the Education of America Act, Public Law 103-227. That was in 1994. One of the things, one of the elements of that law was called the National Standards for Arts Education. This was in 1994. And within this bill, within the, the uh, Education of America Act, was specific recommend, were specific recommendations for art and music. Six years later, we gutted art and music programs to focus on reading and math with no child left behind. Right. So again, we were headed in the right direction under Republican and Democratic administrations. We were headed in the right direction until no child left behind. And then the entire reform movement took a very sharp turn in a very different direction. And we've been battling these these issues, these educational issues since then. Right. So, again, what we said at the beginning where I think we started out heading in the right direction. And I think this shows that, I mean, like the first President Bush saying every child ready for kindergarten. Clinton saying let's do better in the arts because they contribute. Um, somehow this whole thing got hijacked. I think that's the word that I want to use with no child left behind. And the focus uh, was then on standards and accountability and mostly punishment for those who didn't do what they were being asked to do, the impossible task they were being asked to do. So I think we have some cleanup to do in education. And I think we have to get back on the track that the first President Bush and Clinton set for us back in the 80s and 90s. Right, mm-hmm. right. And, and some of the things that we talked about today, I, I think, help move us in that direction. Now, certainly, you know, we, we have the expertise that we have. And, and certainly there are others in education who may have different ideas. But our goal and what we hope happens is that we talk about these things so that we bring some of these different ideas to the table and we say, hey, here's one way that may help with these issues. And somebody else can bring some other ideas. Hey, what if we try this? This may help with these issues. And we can start putting together Mm -hmm. a policy or a set of policies that address these issues in such a way that we can make some positive gains and we Mm -hmm. can start getting back on track for where we need to be. Mm -hmm. Again, no, we we have no argument with the fundamental ideas of these issues. Right. I, I I don't think anybody does. Right. However, the way that we're trying to implement them is systematically flawed, right. and, and we have to recognize that. Say, you know, my bad. Let's yeah, let, we made a mistake. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and my goodness, whatever else we do, please, we have to start listening to educators. We have to start listening to teachers. They're the, what Dr. Bernie and I said this morning is the problem is not in the goal or the aspiration, the aspirational goals. We all agree, okay? The problem is in implementation. Well, who does the implementing? 
the classroom teacher. You know, eventually all this stuff has to be implemented by a classroom teacher. If you have one teacher who doesn't agree, that's an outlier. Teachers around the country are complaining about exactly the same. They can't all be wrong. Right. They're all complaining about this about the breakdowns that we discussed this morning. They can't all be wrong. They can't all be self-serving. It's not the teachers who are the problem. It's not the teachers' union that is the problem. The problem is, is that educational reform has been taken over by non-educators. Let the teachers decide how best to implement this. They know what they're doing, right. and they're doing it for all the right reasons. We need to get out of their way and let them do what they do better than anybody else. Right, right. And, and listen to them so that we can do these things so we can meet these goals in the right way. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, and and that is... You know, I, who was... Bradshaw. Um, mm-hmm. Dr. Wendy. Bradshaw. Wendy Bradshaw. We interviewed her a few weeks ago. She right. was part of our podcast. Well, actually, we didn't interview her more than she contributed yeah. to the podcast. If I want to know something, I'm going to go to somebody like Wendy Bradshaw. Right. I'm going to go to the teacher of the year. I'm going to go to classroom teachers. I'm going to ask them their opinion because they know better than anybody else how to do these things. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll take her word for it rather than some elected official. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's who's practicing putting these things to work every day. Yeah, if I want to know how to read an MRI, I'm not going to ask the insurance company. I'm going to ask a radiologist. Right. You know, same thing with education. Right, right. I mean, it, it, <laughs> As we say these things, you want to say, well, of course. But I think that a lot of people don't really appreciate that. It doesn't really mm-hmm. chime with, yeah. with a lot of people. Teachers are begging to be at the table. They're begging to be part of the uh, decision-making process. Why they've been left out is beyond, well, I have my theories. But, um, but um, we, need to, we need to start including um, teachers in the decision-making. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. All right. Well, this has been fun. Yeah, this was a this was a long one, mm-hmm. uh, but I, but I think an important one. We needed to get through those things because, again, if you're, if we're going to be angry, let's be angry for the right thing. Exactly. If um, you're going to be opposed to Common Core, be opposed for the right reasons. Be opposed because the standards are not right, or the accountability, or you've all heard us talk about Pearson, the educational publisher. Well, if Pearson is making the test then they're determining the standards. Right. Okay. So we want to make sure that Pearson isn't in charge of making the test, that teachers and school districts are in charge of making the test, because that's what's going to determine what the standards are. Right. When when we had FCAT in Florida, FCAT determined the curriculum. Right. Whatever was on FCAT was the curriculum. Right. Okay. We know that. We learned that with with, um, high-stakes testing. Right. So so let's, let's stop generalizing and saying, okay, accountability is a horrible idea. Instead, let's say, well, accountability is okay, but we just got to make sure that we measure it the right way. Let's do it properly. Let's Let's do do it it properly. Mm -hmm. So whether it's accountability, school choice, or or standard-based curriculum, you know, the ideas aren't bad. Yeah, let's have, let's let everybody, go ahead and choose your school, but let's not create a two-tiered school system, one for the haves and one for the have-nots. That's what we have in Polk County right now, and I'll argue that with anybody. We have created two school systems in Polk County, Florida, and I think we've done it throughout the country. Um, we have a school system for those who can, and we have a school system for those who are struggling. And that is wrong, and it's going to take us all in the wrong direction. Right, right. So, so let's go ahead and have these things, but let's do them, let's do them properly. Absolutely. All right. Well, just a, a few quick announcements. Um, we have a workshop coming up. 
That's right. Um, in December, December 11th, uh, so if you're in, in, in our area, uh, December 11th, we will be presenting on uh, the holidays. And we're going we're gonna to help holidays. you get ready. For, we're going to do our best to get you ready for the holidays. We have some great advice and a very different kind of program, not, not, a, not uh, how to handle the stress, but we're going to take things in a pretty different direction. So right. I'm excited about that. Yeah, and if you, if you haven't listened to any of our podcasts over at the Mental Breakdown, um, check out the Mental Breakdown podcast. We've been talking about some of the holiday issues right. related to the holidays and mm-hmm. sort of holiday perspectives that, that may right. help things out a little bit. But that's going to be December 11th. Jump onto our website at PACFLORIDA, P-A-C-F-L-O-R-I-D-A.com. Uh, click on the workshops page and you will find out everything you need to know about that. Um, we're offering CEUs and um, yeah. uh, paperwork and stuff for uh, in-service for teachers and things like that. So lots of things there. Check it out. Um, also, our uh, practice newsletter is out. Uh, again, if you jump onto Pack Florida, you can get to you can subscribe to our newsletter and it will arrive happily in your uh, mailbox uh, once a month. Uh, you have an idea about all the things going on here at our practice and things that we're doing um, all over, I guess. We workshops and mm-hmm. presentations and things like that. All right. Finally, um, I think that it's great to mention that um, we are available to do talks and workshops uh, wherever you are. Um, if, you, if you're interested in having us come and, and, and do any presentations for you, talk about any particular topics, uh, we are we are very welcome to do so. You can get an idea of some of the things that we do on our um, mm-hmm. not only on our, our blog at thementalbreakdown.com, but also on our YouTube page. Um, we have the Mental Breakdown YouTube page uh, where you can see lots of the things that we're talking about. You can see clips from our different presentations. Subscribe there. I'm posting lots of different things, including our podcasts, uh, on our Mental Breakdown uh, YouTube page so that you can if you don't have a chance to listen to it on iTunes, you can certainly listen to it there uh, on YouTube. Right. How about right. that? And, um, yeah, in addition to our monthly workshops, we are uh, beginning to schedule workshops beginning in January. Yes. So if you'd like uh, at schools and to organizations. So if you'd like to get on that uh, list, please uh, give us a call. Let us know, and uh, we'll schedule one for you. Absolutely. Okay. If you have a chance, jump on iTunes and and. Do a rating for us, yep. rating or review. Uh, that certainly increases our visibility to other people. Um, I know that I listen to a lot of podcasts, and one of the ways that I find podcasts is through uh, some of the reviews and things that other people write. Uh, it just pushes you up in the new and noteworthy section so That's that, right. so that right. people can find you um, instead of having to scroll down and, and happen upon uh, your podcast. Uh, when people do ratings and reviews, it, it increases visibility so other people can find us. And as we always say, uh, the more of us that are talking about it, the more likely we are to start creating change. So that's what we all want, and that's what we're all hoping for. And as always, if you don't like our podcast or you disagree, tell us. If you do like it, tell everybody else. Yeah. Because okay. if you don't like something... Um, let us know. Let us know. We'll... Mm-hmm. we'll be, we always enjoy those kind of conversations and discussions. So I would, I'll, I'll happily change my opinion in the face of reasonable arguments. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. So I think that's it. Happy Sunday. All right. So until next time, I'm Dr. Bernie. I'm Dr. Richard. And we will talk with you all again next week. Bye-bye.